we need to be talking about this more. I mean, if the statistics are what Kelsey shared and they are, I would even venture to say they're higher because a lot of women don't know they're pregnant when they lose a little one, that we need to be having these conversations so that when there is a loss, that's already a normal part of what we're talking about. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. In today's episode of Christ and Culture, in keeping with our season-long theme of challenges to humanity, our own Megan Dickerson will lead a panel discussion on infertility and miscarriage. It's a weighty conversation, but it is an important conversation. And it's a conversation with implications for women and men, as well as pastors and ministry leaders. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about sports and the historic achievement of one player in particular. That one player is Ronald Acuna Jr., outfielder for the Atlanta Braves. And with the baseball regular season over and the postseason ramping up, it's a good time to reflect on what Ronald Acuna did this year. Here to discuss is Dr. Christy Thornton. Dr. Thornton, you have a lot of really important big titles here at Southeastern, but you have heard her on the podcast before as our official royal correspondent. And now I'm going to add on to your your resume, uh, baseball beat writer. I'll take it. Okay, very good. Here to discuss with us is, is Christy Thornton. Dr. Thornton, tell our listeners who is Ronald Acuna Jr. and uh, what is so special about his season. Yeah, so Ronald Acuna Jr. plays right field for the Atlanta Braves uh, and bats lead off. So he's the first batter that comes up every game. And there's no one quite like him. He's phenomenal to watch. I've been watching baseball my whole life. Uh, I grew up outside Atlanta in the 90s, which makes me a Braves fan because everybody's a Braves fan in the 90s. And Ronald Acuna is probably one of the most fun players I've ever been able to watch kind of in my lifetime. This year, he hit a number of historic marks. Probably the most prominent of those is that he's the first baseball player in the history of the major leagues to steal over 70 bases and hit more than 40 home runs in the same season. To put that in perspective, he was also the first player to steal more than 60 bases and hit more than 30 (laughs) home runs. So that was a historic mark. And then he exceeded that by another 10 by being the first 70-40 player in the history of the major leagues. And we probably won't ever see anyone like him for a long time. Because usually people, either you're a power hitter for home runs or you're a speedy guy. And he's this rare combination of both. Right, right. So he can do both of them. And it's just phenomenal to watch. Because even his on-base percentage is very high, right? So he's the leadoff batter. If he doesn't hit it out, he at least gets on base. And as soon as he's on base, he steals. And it's just never a dull moment in the first inning for the Braves. Yeah, the Braves had uh, an all-time historic offense. And he was kind of the catalyst that got the ball rolling every every single game. Yeah, Yeah, every single game. So you know he walks up, he's going to do something at the beginning of every game. So Acuna had a historic season, 40 home runs, more than 70 stolen bases. What does this have to do with our faith? Like, how can we think Christianly about what he did this year in baseball? Yeah, 
Yeah. So to my knowledge, Ronald Acuna Jr. isn't a Christian, so we don't want to push too far because he's not a Christian. However, one of my favorite things about watching Acuna play is that he never takes himself too seriously. Like, if you didn't know who he was when you were watching him play, he carries himself as if he's like a 15-year-old playing street ball. Like, he is super laid back. Um, playful, even just the way he reacts when things go good or things don't go well. He's just super chill about it. And for me, I feel like there's something instructive even for Christians about that. We can pursue excellence and really have top tier excellence and still be kind of chill about ourselves and not take ourselves too seriously and like have fun. Uh, And in fact, it probably isn't a bad idea for more Christians to aspire to be that kind of Christian who do things that are really excellent and are also kind of laid back about it. Yeah, there's a joy and a nonchalance about the way he like he just goes and steals a base and it's just effortless. He doesn't call attention to himself. He does a little bit of showboating, but it's never in the sense of trying to downgrade someone else. It's all just it feels natural to who he is. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And even like, you know, at the end of games, right? So like the game's over, Manny flips his hat around backward, untucks his shirt and just like runs up and hugs his teammates. You know, like he's just like a chill guy. And the whole Braves team this year, they're just really fun. Like they're a fun group of people doing things that are historic. And you can do that. You can do things that are historic and have fun. You can do things that are top tier excellent and like be chill about it. Uh, we were talking before the podcast. And, and uh, so uh, I'm a Braves fan as well. And we were saying that, you know, we remember when the Braves were the fun police. They didn't like to have fun. <laughs> now they do like to have fun. And I much prefer the fun version of the Braves to the fun police. Thinking about our listeners in their everyday lives. We've got pastors listening. We've got stay-at-home moms. We've got uh, students, people who work in, in all kinds of vocations. How can we press this into their lives? Like it, God's gifted them in some particular way, maybe not to hit 40 home runs and steal 70 bases, but God's gifted them. What would that look like for them? Yeah, so whatever you're doing, do it with excellence. There's some real real value in pursuing. Uh, and excellence is not always measured by comparison, right? So Ronald Acuna is unique in that he has no comparison. Like there's no one <laughs> that can compare to him uh, because no one's ever done what he does. But some of it is you stewarding your own gifts to your ability in your own context but when you find that you're really good at something, you don't actually have to make a big deal about that. You can just be really good at it uh, without making that a part of your identity. And I think there's something somewhat personal about this in, in my life too, right? My my desire and all the things that I do, all the hats that I wear, we made jokes about me, right? So all the hats that I wear, man, my desire is to do it with excellence, but also not take myself too seriously in the process. And we live in a world where everything feels super intense all the time. And especially Christians living in Christian contexts, everything's incredibly confrontational. Everything feels super serious. Like, it's okay to chill out and, like, just have fun. Be good at what you do. You can put that on your uh, on your resume there. It's okay to chill out, okay quote chill Christy out. Thornton. That's going to be on uh, uh, a quotable thing. <laughs> Dr. Thornton, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Here at Southeastern, we know that our global Great Commission impact is only made possible by faithful ministry partners and supporters like you who share our vision for equipping students to make disciples through the local church and around the world. On Giving Tuesday, November 28th, we invite you to join us by giving to support our Great Commission efforts. To give now or to learn more about how your giving can have an eternal Great Commission impact, visit sebts.edu slash give.
everyone. Megan Dickerson here. I'm the grant administrator here at the Center for Faith and Culture. This year in the CFC, we are talking about challenges to humanity, things like identity, racism, gender, and transhumanism. And along the way, we want to host roundtable conversations that just discuss these and other various topics. Today, we are going to begin this series with a roundtable discussion on infertility and miscarriage. This is a weighty discussion, but it's an important one. How can our faith help us navigate these challenges? Here today to discuss are Jen Hess, Kelsey Hamilton, and Kristen Kellen. Jen Hess is the content director at Waiting in Hope Ministries, and she's co-author of Waiting in Hope, 31 Reflections for Walking with God Through Infertility. She lives with her husband and three sons in the lush Willamette Valley in Oregon. Kelsey Hamilton is a wife, mom, and PhD student currently researching a counseling approach for women who have experienced perinatal bereavement, such as miscarriage and stillbirth. She works at Southeastern, providing counseling for students and supervising graduate interns. And Kristen Kellen is an associate professor of biblical counseling and associate director of the EDD studies here at Southeastern. Her focus is counseling children, teens, and their families. Kristen is married with four young children, and she has authored or co-authored The Whole Woman, The Gospel for Disordered Lives, and Counseling Women. Thank you all so much for being here to get today. I know I just introduced you, but I'm going to ask each of you to just say a little bit in your own words about yourself. Um, Kristen, would you go first and just tell us a little bit about your background? Why are you interested in talking about miscarriage and infertility? Yeah, that's a great question, Megan. So there's kind of two hats of me that are interested in this topic. One is as a counseling professor and a counselor, I counsel women at all stages of life and um, have counseled several women walking through infertility and miscarriage. Uh, But the other hat of me, part of me that is interested in this is because we walked through this in our family. We've had five miscarriages early on. Um, and then four young kiddos now at home. Um, And so it's just been a very personal topic to me um, and a topic that I think we need to talk more about in the church. Jen, what about you? You've written a book on this topic. How did you figure out that this is a place you needed to to think about? Yes, thanks, Megan. And that's a funny way of saying it, but because God kind of figured that out for me. Um, I have also experienced personally infertility, primary and secondary. So that was many years ago and God led me to start a support group at my local church and have been involved in infertility ministry for almost 15 years now. And so currently I am partnering with Waiting Hope Ministries and we help churches set up support groups. And my co-author started that organization. And so the book is kind of an extension of that ministry to give women that companion to walk with them through this life crisis, um, these awful experiences. And I'm also a big advocate of talking about it at church and helping people to better understand what's going on in these issues. Kelsey, would you you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So like Dr. Kellen and Jen had the personal experience of infertility and, and miscarriage. We lost four babies before I have two healthy boys at home now. They're both little, but before that, actually, I served as a chaplain in a hospital for a summer. I did an internship there. 
as part of my master's degree in counseling. And one of my departments was the labor and delivery department. And it was so formative to have through seminary training and know what I think about theology and suffering and God's goodness, but to sit with those families who are not bringing a baby home was so, so formative for me. And so that was really my first experience was being in that place of trying to care for others in unspeakable grief. And then um, when I took a class with Dr. Kellen, I was finishing up my master's degree and I wrote a research paper on the topic of infertility and miscarriage. And as I was looking for resources, I said, there's not really a lot of really good research here, especially from a Christian perspective. And she said, great, go write a dissertation. So here I am <laughs> several years later, working on that, trying to contribute to say that there's such a need to have these conversations. There's a need to train and equip caregivers so that we know how to love and support people when they're really questioning how God allows this to happen. And and what that means for grief and our family moving forward and how to integrate those losses. So that's a lot of what um, has led me to this point of, of study. Because weighty as it is to, to share those stories, and our family also has our own uh, story of loss and the unique circumstances of that. But Kelsey, could you share just some important statistics? We know that these stories are, are really more important, but sometimes these numbers help give us a picture of what we're talking about. How many women struggle with infertility? What what are rates of miscarriage? Yeah, so Resolve, which is a the National Infertility Association, has the statistic that one in eight couples, or about twelve percent of married women, will struggle with getting pregnant. Usually, they say if you're not able to conceive within a year, depending on the woman's age, that that constitutes infertility. And then the March of Dimes is a really great organization that works with issues related to pregnancy, but they have a lot on on miscarriage. And they say about 10 to 20% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. Of those, they estimate about 80% happen in that first trimester. And then they say about 5%, 1 to 5% happen in the second trimester. So those are kind of some ideas. And I was teaching on this a week ago, and I had pictures and I had a picture of a happy couple with a baby, and a couple that was crying. And I told the students, so for in your church, for every roughly three couples that look like that happy couple welcoming a baby, there's one that is is grieving, either unable to get pregnant or has lost a baby. And so it's really important to know those statistics and be mindful of the people in our pews, really, who are walking through this. Jen, with, with your work and with these rates, we know that people in all of our churches have to be suffering from infertility and from miscarriage and loss in various ways. Through your support groups and ministry opportunities, what are some ways that we can grow in caring for for these families? Yeah, I think it's great to be, as Kelsey has done, like talk about it and get knowledge out there about like this is affecting people because if it hasn't affected you personally, it's just not on your radar. So also coming to understand like that this is grief. So if you have lost a baby, acknowledging that that's a life that God has knitted within this, this mama, and it doesn't matter how long or how short, it just, there's a lot of excitement that naturally comes and joy, and that's all really good. And then it's just taken away. And so there's a great bereavement that a couple experiences. And then also with infertility, there's that longing, that unfulfilled, the hope deferred. And so that's another kind of grief. And so it's kind of like with miscarriage, there's the should have beens 
uh, well, my child should have been or would have been, you know, this age at um, going into kindergarten or, you know, there's all the a mom always remembers those dates. And, and then with infertility, it's the might have been it's like, oh, I might have been pregnant with all my other friends and, and things like that. So being aware of these touch points of grief, that it is not just like a one-time event, that it is a continual walking through the loss and the hurt. So being really sensitive toward that as you would to someone who lost a, a parent or another loved one and really listening and acknowledging, just saying, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry that you're experiencing infertility. And it doesn't have to be a lot of words. I think presence might speak louder than some words that we often try to fill in the blanks that God has intentionally left unknown. And we don't need to do that. We can just be there for that person, that couple, and show them love. Remember dates, like when they, I'm sure the mom might know the due date. And so if she's willing to talk about that with you, like send her a text and say, I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you right now. Uh, if a friend is going through um, a fertility treatment and you're aware of that, just send a text. I'm praying for you this morning. And it kind of depends on your relationship with that person, but you know, you could send them a gift or a note or whatever it may be, but just really yeah, acknowledging that this is hard, that you're there and that the Lord is with them and comforting them. And um and we can't fix it, but we can be there. And those are some wise words. I really appreciate that. Just from people to people in the church, how we can encourage one another, moms and dads as well. I think uh, we need to recognize that just because we're it's a, a group of women having this conversation, dads are also struggling and grieving as well. Well, Kristen, you work with a lot of pastors and you teach counseling to pastors and training. What are some things that pastors and church leaders might need to be aware of as they think about this topic? I would echo all the things that that Jen said. I mean, pastors, church leaders are to be doing life with their people. And so ideally, there isn't this significant gap between the layperson and the pastor. They're all ministering to this family. So like Jen said, remembering the dates, just being mindful of the grief, the kind of intangible grief the would-have-beens, the should-have-beens, those sorts of things, uh, and being mindful that just because they've had that loss, the pain doesn't go away, that there are triggers and reminders. Uh, my seven-year-old just this morning asked me how many babies I've had in my belly. I mean, just random, right? And so those reminders are going to come up. And so for pastors and leaders, especially to be mindful, maybe even additionally mindful on days like Mother's Day, uh, if there's a couple who is grieving the inability to have children, it's probably not wise to say, hey, all the mamas stand up so we can applaud you. It's well-intentioned, but um, I see lots of nodding on the screen. Y'all can't see the screen, but we're all nodding. There were two Mother's Days where I couldn't go to church that morning because I didn't want to have to wrestle with, do I stand or do I sit, right? Because losing a child is very personal intimate, often hidden thing, right? And so being mindful of that. I think also recognizing we need to be talking about this more. I mean, if the statistics are what Kelsey shared, and they are, I would even venture to say they're higher because a lot of women don't know they're pregnant when they lose a little one, that we need to be having these conversations so that when there is a loss, that's already a normal part of what we're talking about. And it doesn't feel abnormal for a pastor to then bring it up 
right? Uh, but for pastors and leaders to have good, solid theology about infertility and miscarriage and loss, especially to understand this little person was a full image bearer of God, regardless of the duration of their life or their capacity in the womb, they're a full image bearer. And that makes them worthy of dignity and honor. Uh, and so even pastors going so far as to say, may I call your child by name? Have you named your child so that I can use his or her name? Little things like that make a difference, but it's reflective of theology, right? And of, of understanding what the Lord has to say about these little ones and the loss. Um, and, and remembering that God grieves that loss too, right? Uh, we would never lose a child. We would never struggle with infertility had Genesis 3 not happened. Uh, and so we can grieve it and we should openly grieve it because we're talking about it and we're doing life together. A lot of what you said is important, like for my own story, that we had a surprise pregnancy and everybody knew that we shouldn't have another baby. And then we lost. So I didn't tell anybody. And then I, we lost our baby. And so then how do you go back and say, well, now I'm grieving this baby that you didn't think we should be able to have. And so it's just this cycle of we just didn't know how to talk about it. So how are other ways that we can, other than things that, that Kristen has already said, just to be more open, how can we make our churches um, more comfortable with talking about this kind of pain? How can we support them, them well through it to be able to talk about it, but also to support them through our pain? I think we just need to get a whole lot better with grief and communal grief. Um, that we we actually grieve and lament with one another. But that makes us really uncomfortable. And we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like being sad. And so we are aversive to that. The problem is when there's an instance like what you shared, Megan, we had similar instances where we didn't tell anyone. Um, then we're wrestling. But But if we are used to grieving together and if we're honest about the state of brokenness and the effects of sin on this world, we don't have to be afraid of it, right? We can we can commune together. I think this is one way that Western culture, like we just fail miserably at this, whereas other cultures do corporate grief and lament so much better. And we can learn from our global brothers and sisters in this way. I think that's just an easy one because then when we share our grief together, we can we can face it together as opposed to it being kind of a hush-hush who do I tell? How do I have this conversation? Uh, for doing life together, we're actually grieving together. We've got to, we just kind of normalize that. Kelsey, do you have anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I think in addition and stemming off of that, that vulnerability breeds vulnerability. And so recognizing that um, for people who have experienced infertility or miscarriage, there's a point in healing where we're actually able to turn outward when we, we have done the internal grief work and we're able to turn outward and and look to other people and maybe say like, Hey, this is part of our story. Um, and that's something that I found is like being a student and, and really focusing on this topic when people are like, Oh, what are you, what are you reading? What are you researching? I tell them every person I've told has said either that they experienced a loss or they knew someone who did, and they had no idea what to say. And it's really neat to see when they share, I feel comfortable sharing and saying, Hey, me too. And, and so there's this beauty in being able to share and be vulnerable in the body of Christ to, to have those connections with other people who 
maybe they understand in, in a way that they've had loss. Maybe they don't understand. And they say, hey, I would love to hear more and grieve with you what's happened. Um, but also so that I might understand and care for others well, too. So I think that idea of vulnerability, breeding vulnerability and us being being able at a certain point in healing to turn outward um, and to, to be the body of Christ together is really beautiful. Thanks, Kelsey. Jen, do you have some some more thoughts for us? Yeah, well, I would echo both Kristen and Kelsey and talk about the the community aspect of, you know, weeping with one another and then that vulnerability piece. I would say that there's the responsibility of a church body to come together. Um, but also if you are the one experiencing that pain, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you to see other people who are hurting and to be the one to speak out about that. Because if you are only keeping silent about your struggles, people can't help you. And so to, to like actually have faith that when you talk about it, it, you might experience hurt because people don't understand, but they won't understand until you talk about it. And so having that, that boldness and then having the space on the other hand is the space to be able to, to talk about something that is more private and personal. And I'll just give a little plug for like having support groups, having places for people to go who, who do understand more that um, like, even in this group where we're nodding and we're, we're like, okay, yes, I get it. I understand. And so there's that safety there um, in having a, a subgroup, a community where you can talk through go through your, your personal losses and then really heal together. And that's where you see the beauty of redemption, even within the body of us lifting each other up through these things and um, comforting each other through Christ working in all of us and not just us individually. So um, it's a really beautiful thing, even to come out of such a hard thing. So um, yeah, I definitely encourage churches, pastors, and then the people who are also walking through this themselves to just think about where can I minister? Um, Where can I use these things that have happened to me? And how is God maybe going to redeem that by me supporting others? Because I'm not the only one, even though it feels like that. What a beautiful way to close. And especially as I can see in each of your faces that the way that the Lord has worked in your life through your suffering and the gift that you get to then be to families in your churches and the work that all three of you are doing. And I'm really thankful that in spite of all of that suffering, that the Lord is using each of you three ladies to do some really good work for the church and so that the church would be built up into Christ um, to love to love one another well and to grieve well. Well, ladies, if you would, please share how people can follow you and your work online, Jen. Yes. Well, I'm on social media sometimes, but um, (laughs) also you can follow Waiting in Hope Ministries. And we share, of course, about the, the book, which is also called Waiting in Hope. And then just other encouragement for women and couples who are going through this. So there's online support available, but also, as I mentioned, we can help you set up support group at your church and we work within local bodies 
And so, yeah, if you are kind of feeling that nudge, you know, I encourage you follow, follow up on that. All right, Kelsey. I don't have a whole lot online for following. I'm, I'm on social media. I think it's Kelsey B. Hamilton is me. Yeah, right now I'm, I'm head down in the books, but you can be looking for a, a dissertation, hopefully, Lord willing, in the next year, maybe, uh, if Dr. Kellen will, will allow me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Good I'm work sure there. on, my friend. <laughs> All right. And Kristen? Like Jen, I'm on social media sometimes. I will encourage you, though, Megan, you noted one of my books at the beginning is Counseling Women. There's a chapter in there about counseling and fertility. I wrote that chapter specifically. Kelsey's holding it up on the screen, y'all. I wrote that chapter for uh, not necessarily just professional counselors, but lay people and pastors. So most pastors probably won't pick up a book called Counseling Women, but uh, there is a chapter in there on infertility. And that chapter, honestly, you guys, was probably one of my favorite but hardest to write because it is so personal for me. So I think that there's some, hopefully some helpful guidance in there for pastors and lay leaders as they try to walk alongside of women and men who are walking through infertility and miscarriage. Well, ladies, thank you so much. And I'm excited for us to get to learn more about you and what you do. And and especially that someone is going to reach out, they're going to hear this podcast and think, I need to start a support group in my church and get connected with a Waiting and Hope Ministries. I can't wait to hear those stories. So thank you for your time and for sharing with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Megan. Thanks. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf the part of the show where professors at Southeastern or guests of the podcast share what they're reading right now. Here back with us is Dr. Christy Thornton. So, Dr. Thornton, what's on your bookshelf right now? Right now, I'm reading The Trinity and the Canon, edited by Brandon Smith. So the project that Brandon's put together is really fascinating. So what he does is he takes a look at biblical exegesis as an understanding for the essentially Trinitarian nature of the text and the God of the text. And he does that by assembling like really a stellar dream team of Trinitarian theologians. And they break down book by book, section of the canon by section of the canon, right? So uh, Scott Swain writes the Gospel of John. And so he looks at the Trinity of the Gospel of John. Keith Whitfield does the Book of Acts. So the Trinity in the Book of Acts. Heath Thomas looks at the Trinity in the Old Testament. Brandon himself writes the one in Revelation. And then there's like Tom Schreiner and Fred Sanders uh, and so for those of us who, uh, us theologians who are accustomed with the charge that the Trinity is somehow extra biblical, what Brandon's done is he's offered a text to say, no, 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 the Bible was always about the triune God. Let me show you how, which makes it a really valuable resource for our context. That sounds really interesting. I, I was just teaching about the Trinity uh, for our church last Wednesday night and going through these things, asking the question, was the Trinity just made up a little bit later or is it there in the text? And And so this may be a helpful resource for me as we seek to do that. Thank you for that recommendation. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Go subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating, brief review. Share it with a friend. That goes a long, long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.